0: Hey friends, it's good to be with you as the church in this, even in this format. Um, I know this is not perfect, but as we were reminded at Pentecost last week, the the Holy Spirit is even more fundamental to our life together as a church than than even being in one place. So I just want to start by praying for us and inviting the Holy Spirit here. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. We ask that you would let your words have the effects that you desire and none other. In Jesus' name, amen. Parents, uh, I wanted to speak to you for a second. I'm going to be saying some challenging things today. I just want to give you a heads up. If you are watching this with children and feel like you need to pause uh, at moments to give a little bit more context or explain things, please feel free to do so. Feel free to just take this in chunks uh, as it seems right to you. So as Josh mentioned, this is a second week of a new series that we're doing called What is Church? Over the summer, we're going to be reading through Acts and 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be talking about the church. So at Pentecost last week, Josh gave us this great talk recounting the moment when the followers of Jesus received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and we're still going to be there in Acts chapter 2. So remember what's happening from last week. The followers of Jesus, they have received the Holy Spirit, they are begin praising God in many languages in the midst of this even larger crowd that's in Jerusalem. And people in that crowd begin to kind of ask, hey, what's going on over with those folks over there? And one of the disciples, Peter, stands up to explain what is happening and why it's happening. And So we're going to be looking at at Peter's speech today, if you would like to read along, beginning in Acts chapter 2, beginning verse 22. So here's what Peter says to them. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know. This man, handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. So just pause here for one second. This passage already might make us a little bit uneasy as Christians, especially if we have any kind of awareness of our history as a church. Christians have spent centuries treating Jewish people terribly. Christians have tortured Jews, they have burned their synagogues, they have looted their neighborhoods, they have stolen their property, and they have murdered them in large numbers. And the Holocaust is just the largest of many examples. We Christians have tried to justify doing these things, to Jews by misusing Peter's accusation here, that the Jews are guilty of killing Jesus. So Christians today who know that history, we often want to kind of fix our history, to make amends for it. And one way to do that, which I I don't think is actually really that helpful, but I understand wanting to try very hard to ignore the sharpness of the critique that Jesus's disciples are making against their fellow Jews. It's certainly true that Peter is, is not saying anything to the Jewish crowd that doesn't apply to himself and the other disciples. Peter is a Jewish man speaking about a Jewish man to a Jewish crowd gathered in Jerusalem for a Jewish festival. If if we want to understand what is church, we actually begin at this time before anyone would have thought to use the word Christian or the word church. Instead as as they do throughout the book of Acts, Jesus's followers are describing their movement not as the first Christian church, but as the way. And they mean two different things by that. First, that they worship Jesus, who is the way. And also, second, that they are following along the way of Jesus, the same way that Jesus walked. So what is church? It is a people gathered on the way. Ultimately, Peter wasn't saying anything to the Jewish crowd that didn't apply to all of us. Jesus was crucified by all of us. By our sin. Christians, Jews, everyone. There's no special blame to be put on the Jewish people. But in order to understand what Peter is saying here, we, we can't turn away from these heavy, heavy things he is saying to his audience. So after explaining more from the Jewish scriptures about why Jesus is the Messiah, Peter concludes with this, therefore let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus, whom you crucified. The crowd responds. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter gives them a few things, but it starts with this. Repent. Repent. Here's the problem. We have have lost the word repent. We don't know what it means. We often say repent when what we mean is something else. There's a a kind of like secularized version of repentance that, that floats in our culture that kind of goes something like this. Like obviously it's not enough to just say that you're sorry. So you have to do better. Check yourself. Educate yourself. Make yourself better but let's let's not blame this entirely on people outside the church. We, We Christians are very comfortable using the word repent wrongly. We also say repent when what we mean is turn your life around. Make better choices. Fix this. Get yourself together. Take stock of your life. Make some changes. Start a new habit. Do better. Be better. We think then that the point of repentance is to make us good, to To make things right again. And friends, if that's what we mean by repentance, then that is a completely useless kind of repentance. That's not the real thing. It's not what Peter means at all. And frankly, that idea of repentance is actively preventing us from doing any real repenting. Peter has told the crowd already that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he told them this to show them that Jesus was the Messiah all along. And so he's actually driving home the point that they crucified their own Messiah. But we act sometimes, we act as if Peter is saying to the crowd something more like, look, yeah, you had Jesus killed, but God saved him. And so it kind of evens out if you think about it. Like, no hard feelings. Jesus is actually very nice. And he still loves you, and God saved him so that you wouldn't have to feel bad about his death. And the crowd says, but... But I, that sounds bad. I I do kind of feel bad about that. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Don't beat yourself up about it. It's all's well that ends well, right? Just do better. You're a work in progress. Learn from this mistake. Take one step at a time. All God asks is that you do a little bit less crucifying tomorrow and a little bit less crucifying the day after that. But the passage here says that when Peter finished speaking, the crowd was cut to the heart by his words. That's actually a pretty literal translation of the Greek phrase. Cut to the heart or pierced to the heart. They were devastated. They were shattered. Peter's words stabbed them in the chest. To understand why that is requires us to feel from their perspective the significance of their people's own story. Peter understands exactly what he's saying. This is why he spins a large Portion of his speech quoting from and explaining texts that are from the Jewish scriptures. And what he's really saying is this You are the people of Israel. You are cho- God's chosen people. God has spoken to you, He's loved you, He has done everything for you, He has made you for obedience. He has promised a Messiah to save you and fulfill all the promises He made to you. The one thing you had to do was to look for this Messiah to obey and honor him as God's anointed. And not only did you fail to recognize this Messiah when he was among you, you murdered him. You asked some Gentiles to crucify him. So you think you can make that right? You think that you can be good after that? You, you took God's son and you tortured him to death. And you think you can just make it up to him? Do you, do you really think God cares more about your law than he cares about his own son? You think you can atone for this? You think you can, like, pay this back if you just say twice as many prayers? No. It's all over now. It's all—it's useless now. This, this whole lifestyle of Jewish worship and sacrifice, all the laws, they won't do anything to make you right. They won't make you a good person anymore. It's ruined. You can't be good after you've crucified the Messiah. There is no fixing this. There is no uncrucifying Jesus. You've done that now and everything else is over for you. The fact that Jesus is alive doesn't change what you did. You, didn't, you don't get to be good. You don't get to make yourself better. You don't get right with God simply by learning from your mistakes and trying harder next time. There is no next time. There is one Messiah, and you crucified him. I think it's that understanding of of Peter's message. That's what causes the crowd to fall into this kind of total panic, this utter despair. They are crying and shouting to Peter, what can we possibly do then? I mean, if we can't be good by following the law, how how will we be saved? That's the only thing we have. That's the, the very thing that defines us. Without that, what... What even is left for us? And that's when Peter says, repent. And what Peter means is not, turn from one way of doing things to a better way of doing things. He means turn from all the other places where you would put your hope. All the ways that you would want to justify yourselves and turn to Jesus. Yes, your situation right now is impossible. You are doomed. Here's the only good news that I can give you that that this impossible problem you are facing is one that God expected the whole time. That God saw this coming. You didn't betray Him when you murdered Jesus. You have been betraying Him from the very beginning, for generations, from the fall of Adam and Eve. And so, from the very beginning, He knew that He would take the form of a human being, that He would die at your hands. That he would destroy the power of sin and death. None of this is going to catch God by surprise, and he still intends to save you. But you will have to throw yourselves entirely upon Jesus. You will have to stop pretending you can be good. You will have to stop believing that your Jewish lifestyle will save you on its own. You will have to become debtors, and in that way you will have to become totally dependent on the love and forgiveness of Jesus. That's what Peter means by repent. Man, I was afraid this was going to turn into an old-fashioned sermon, but we're we're getting into it now, so let's keep going. So that was your exegesis. Here's your application. I want to just take a moment now to, to talk just to the white folks among us. My white brothers and sisters. We've been having some conversations. We, we will continue to have many conversations in the future. But while I, I have as many of you here as I have, there's some things I need to tell you. This is not about you alone. This is about us, me as well. There's nothing I can say here that does not apply to me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at that. And I was at the beach yesterday. As to whiteness, I am the whitest. So, I fall under God's word here like all of us. You that are white Americans, listen to what I have to say. We have to feel the weight of our people's story. Why, folks, we we live in a country that enslaved black Africans for centuries. Brought them to this country, forced them to work as free manual labor. A significant portion of the wealth and innovation in this country was made possible by all that free labor. We resisted their freedom with everything that we had. We fought a war over it. After their emancipation, we found economic ways to keep them in bondage through sharecropping. We found legal ways to keep them in bondage through Jim Crow. We found electoral ways to make sure that they faced the strictest requirements for eligibility to vote. And we drew the election map around them so that even when they had the right to vote, they would have no real say in anything. We looked for social ways to make sure that they stayed put at the bottom. We marked their neighborhoods as undesirable and high risk. We moved away when they moved in near us. We charged them the highest rates on their mortgages. We owned their land and their houses and forced them out as soon as we could find a tenant that would pay more. Into the 1970s and well beyond, well into my lifetime, the the Department of Justice has been filing lawsuits by the thousands against landlords who still refuse to rent rent nicer properties to black folks who have the money and in fact including one landlord who is our president right now when we struggled to discriminate against black people just because they were black we found other words words that mean different things the war on drugs gang culture welfare queens broken window policing stop and frisk these were new words but they just had the same old effect on the black community as all of our other previous attempts to keep them enslaved. We would like to believe that those things were not done by us and have nothing to do with us. But we want none of the responsibility while we enjoy all of the benefits. We, we live in the wealthiest country on the earth. And that definitely has something to do with slavery. We, we say that we would like to ha- black folks to have better opportunities, but not if it really costs us anything. And, and meanwhile, we are very happy to live not lives that we consider normal. We are happy to inherit money and property that our ancestors obtained at the expense of black people. We are happy to work in jobs where we are still more likely to be promoted and better paid. We are happy to send our children to schools and universities that were designed for us, where they teach a curricula that is about our history. We are happy to spend most of our time in rooms, including sanctuaries, including Bible studies, with all white people. We are happy that if we ever face... A trial by jury, the jury room will probably be all white as well. We are happy to avoid paying taxes if those taxes are just going to be used to benefit the black community. We are happy to have a medical system that is terrible but is still most readily accessible for us, where we are prescribed medicines that were designed and tested to work for us. We are happy to shop at stores that are built near us, with products that are marketed to us, with profits that go to us, that benefit the retirement accounts that we have built using money and opportunities we inherited and which we intend to pass on to our children and not anyone else's. It can't be a bad thing to learn about our story, and if if you would like to read more or learn more about any of those parts of our history, please feel free to ask. But really, we we are really only just beginning to get to the problem. Many of us know this history. Some of you, I'm sure, probably know a lot more about it than I do. And we feel bad about it. I mean, we still don't think about it very often, but when we do, it makes us sad. Maybe like at the end of, of a really well-made documentary, it momentarily cuts us to the heart. But we soothe ourselves with our confidence that we're already doing something. We're making our best effort. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. But it's, it's pretty good. Thank you, God, that you have not made us like those other white folks. We, at least we are aware. At least we're not intentionally trying to make the problem worse. And that's pretty good, right? Here's the thing. No. No. It's not good. We're not good. We don't get to be good. We're not good people. We're not the good kind of white American. There is no such thing. There is no undoing what we've done. There is no stepping outside of what we are continuing to do. We cannot fix this. We can't make this better. We can't improve ourselves. At times like these, with with everything going on in our society, lots of white folks are interested in, in racism in America, lots of us are trying to figure out how to get interested while hanging on to a sense of our own goodness. To a sense of ourselves as, as not perfect, but pretty good, pretty ethical, pretty rational, pretty normal. Some of us are trying to be right by distancing ourselves from the possibility that we were ever wrong. We are trying very hard to make what is happening today be about something other than the lifestyles we have built on top of 400 years of slavery and its consequences. Many of us, particularly around the places like ECV, are really trying to be right by getting smarter, by getting more active, by opening ourselves up to new possibilities. But if we're doing that because we think that we can do the right thing here, I have come to share some very bad news. We might like to say of ourselves one day that I lived through 2020 and it wasn't easy, but I did the right thing. And that will be a lie. The problem is we, we can't do the right thing. We've already done the wrong thing and we've done it over and over and we're not even really that stressed about it. It's too late for us. For us, there, there is no getting this right. We can't make up for what we've done, we can't atone for anything, we can't pay back our sins. We would like to think that the problem of racism in America is a problem of attitudes and actions because those are things that sound like we could fix them. But the problem is is the whole of it, the whole of our lives, the whole of our society, the lifestyles in that society that we will return to as soon as the protests end, the lifestyles that we will just continue to call normal. If we take Jesus seriously, that that what we do to the least among his family, we do to him, then, then we have not only crucified Christ, we continue to crucify him. Even worse, in some ways, we crucify him and we're just so casual about it. We call it normal life. We spend so much time arguing with Peter about how Really, and you think about it, it was the Romans who killed Jesus. You don't see a hammer and nails in my hands. I was just trying to follow the laws and traditions of my people, which I thought came from God. So really, I was just trying to be faithful. We will fight endlessly to avoid having our hearts cut like that crowd did. So you might say to me, but Patrick, I have, I have so many black friends that I love. I, I believe you love them. I believe that they love you. But that doesn't mean you are doing well when it comes to race. It makes no difference. But Patrick, you will say to me, I, I wrote a whole master's thesis on the lyrics of KRS-1. It doesn't make any difference. But Patrick, you will say, I, I introduced legislation to end mandatory sentencing guidelines. It doesn't make any difference. But Patrick, you might say, I disagree. That's, I've spent my life trying to make a difference and I'm proud of the work that I've done. Look, a lot of things might change, but you haven't somehow made yourself right. There is no working your way to good. It doesn't matter how hard you try, how many books you read, how many black friends you make, how radical you are in your pursuit of justice. There are white folks who dedicate their entire lives to justice in order to work off their debt. It's never enough. There are white folks right now out there who are trying to be the most radical. They will jump on a police car. They will smash a window in the name of revolution. It won't make them right. There are white folks hoping to get tear gassed or hit with a rubber bullet to prove their anti-racist credentials. That's not going to make them right. In fact, so many of our attempts to make ourselves right are actively making things worse, even as we defend to the death our own rightness. We have read so many books about black people that we have become paralyzed around actual black people, so self-conscious and apologetic that that we can't have anything just like a normal, genuine human conversation. We have tried to reach out to our black friends to, to check in. We have cried over our sins before them We have apologized for our race profusely. All of that just so that a black person would tell us, fine, yes, I get it. Fine, you've done enough. You're a good one. Maybe we have tried to argue with our white friends and family. Maybe we have given that up very quickly. But even when we persist, we have only deepened divisions and cultural isolation and created backlash. We have tried to get proximate by entering into black spaces and black neighborhoods, but we bring all our sin with us and so we gentrify and appropriate those spaces to death. As we are beginning to learn these things, we feel flashes of frustration and outright anger. That's a sign that we are beginning to understand our problem. We get very frustrated when we work very hard to learn about something and then we find out that our new opinion is also wrong. We get very frustrated when it feels like we are being blamed simply for being born white. We get angry at black folks who complain about injustice and don't offer us a way to fix things. We want to know from them, how do I make this right? I'm a good person. Can't you see it? Like I, I clearly want to do what is right. I will do it. Just, Just tell me. Why won't you tell me? don't you want me to fix myself? Don't you want me to end racism? And then we get mad. If you won't help me make this right, then maybe you're the problem. Do you actually love being a victim? When are you going to get over all of this slavery stuff? White folks, no one is hiding from us the answer to these questions. There is no answer. The problem is, is in our premise, right? At the very beginning, I'm a good person. I want to do what's right. Just tell me. That's the problem. We're we're not good people, and we don't want to do what's right. That's a hard thing to hear. Some of us have spent a lot of our lives trying to get right when it comes to race, and it's hard to hear that. It's hard to hear that at least if our goal was to be good, all that effort has been wasted. I won't come out of this time in our life together, in history, having done the right thing. I'm not giving you this sermon because I want to be right. I don't have any confidence that I will get this right or be good or come out the other side of this feeling like we accomplished something. You can feel rest assured, I will go home tonight and feel terrible. To be clear, it is not our brothers and sisters of color who asked me to say these things to you. They might not even agree with what I'm saying. I don't know. There are lots of opinions in the world. This is not from them. This is from the Lord. There is no uncrucifying Jesus. There is no undoing what we have done. It's too late. If we wanted to be people who could do the right thing when it comes to race, we would have to do it differently from the very beginning, from before we were even born. There, is, there was no chance of us being good people. There is no chance of our children being good people. We will not be able to raise them as anti-racist. We will not be able to teach them how to do better than we did, because no matter what we teach them, they will still grow up white in America, enjoying their lives. So my white brothers and sisters, if what I'm saying sounds like I am making it the situation to be hopeless, that we just cannot fix racism in America, and that things are so bad that we feel like despairing, then you are understanding correctly what God is saying. You might say, Patrick, I'm a Christian. I, don't, I can't believe in this kind of hopelessness. I don't believe God won't empower us to fix things. I mean, it's, it's true. It's true that despair has no place in the kingdom of God. We want to fight against despair. But for too long, our best strategy for avoiding despair has been lying to ourselves. Convincing ourselves that we're actually doing pretty good about really the best that anybody could do, just given the circumstances, and no one should really expect more out of us. When we avoid despair in that way, we are rejecting Christ. Because we are telling him we never really needed him or his cross. We are saying to Peter, yeah, I hear you, Peter, but there has to be another way. Because what you're saying sounds horrifying. Sometimes, though, it is the truth that makes us despair. And in those cases, the antidote to despair is not falsehood, but more truth. It is horrifying what we have done and what we are doing to black people in this country. And make no mistake, we are doing it. And it is horrifying. And given all that, it is not immediately obvious how we go on living with ourselves. And until we understand that, there is no real possibility of being cut to the heart. And there is no reason for Peter then to say to us, repent. There is no real possibility of throwing ourselves then desperately, wholeheartedly onto Jesus in complete and utter dependence on his righteousness alone. To our brothers and sisters of color, look, you all can rejoin us. Come back in and listen. Look, I didn't come here today to make you feel better. Don't think for one second that you are somehow off the hook. In fact, you don't even necessarily have a free pass when it comes to race, but you can figure that out on your own. Even if race is is not the location of an impossible sin in your life, impossible sin still exists somewhere else for you. Sophia and I, we bought a piece of property last year. I know full well that I'm able to own that property because some years ago a white man stole it from another man. And I have not made any effort to find the original Quinnipiac inhabitants of this land and just give it back to them. We all enjoy our lives on stolen land. It is far too late for any of us to do right by our Native American brothers and sisters. We are starting to discover, and we'll continue to discover, that it is far too late for us to be good people when it comes to our treatment of the environment. It's over. It's over. Our crime has been committed it cannot be uncommitted My wife is is from Costa Rica she has this she has an uncle who has dedicated his whole life to a radical activism against all the the terrible things that the US has done in Latin America He he did not want to come to our wedding and it caused a real dispute in Sophia's family because he did not want his niece to marry an American and perhaps even worse move to America. Maybe one day I will have a friendship with this man, but if I do, it can't be on the basis of me convincing him that I'm right. I can't love him by trying to get him to like me, by trying to make him affirm that I am good and deserving of his friendship. I can't just be nice to him until he changes his mind about America. I can't even try to convince him that, that all those other it was all those other bad americans they were the ones who made the decision not my president i'm one of the good americans this uncle knows perfectly well that i am living with the fruits and, <laughs> and in this case i mean that kind of literally of american imperialism in latin america there are benefits that i enjoy because of the resources we have extracted because of the dictators we have supported because of the death squads that we have trained and funded if you are an american And of any race, even if you became an American yesterday, you have quite easily agreed to enjoy the benefits of those policies. Don't think you can reject the responsibility. This uncle can't be convinced that I'm good. We can't have a relationship on that basis, because he's correct. And it doesn't have to be all about like these big ideas and these big things. I guarantee you that there are people in your past that you have wounded so deeply that they will carry that wound with them until the holy spirit heals them. You may not have even realized it. You you may have tried hard to forget about it, but you can't undo it. In high school, I I did something to a friend that hurt him very badly. And if I if I tried to tell you the story, it would just it would sound very high school and maybe like frivolous, but the emotions were real. He was hurt very badly. It ruined our friendship. Even later after I apologized and he said we were cool, we were not cool. Things were weird after that. And then right after we graduated high school, his father was uh, killed very suddenly and tragically. And I didn't know what to do. I sent him this letter with my condolences and also just expressing that, you know, despite everything that had happened, I I still wanted to be there for them, be there for him. He He could feel free to reach out to me at any time. And And that's the last communication we've had for over 15 years. I had to accept that I couldn't be the person to comfort him anymore. If I wanted to be the kind of friend who could help him in difficult times, I should have never done what I did to him in the first place. But I had done it, and there was no one doing it, and I had lost the authority to speak goodness into his life. I can still pray for him. Nothing is impossible for God. Maybe God will heal him. Maybe he will have a new encounter with the Holy Spirit. Maybe he will even reach out someday in the future and reconnect. But in this case, I can't be the one to heal him. I have forfeited my ability to make this right on my own. So Peter doesn't only say, repent. He says, repent and... And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or as he says in a speech to a a similar crowd later in Acts 3, Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You have no hope, Peter says. Certainly not if your hope is to do better the one thing that I can offer to you is this, that Jesus knew this day would come. That the very Messiah you crucified is still living and active. He is right. He is good. And he has risen to be right for you. Pray to him and he might let you enter into his own life. into his own righteousness, to walk with him as he walks, to to go down into the waters of baptism and and then up again, to, to go up on the cross with him and down into the grave with him and out of the tomb with him. Pray, and you might then enjoy the refreshing presence of the Lord. Then, on the other side of that refreshing presence, there might be a new possibility. Maybe there is a life then that Jesus has for you where your choices and your woundedness come out of his choices and his woundedness. But that means our choices can no longer be about ourselves and our rightness, about trying to justify ourselves. They can only be about our obedience to the will of God. So look, none of these words that I'm, I'm saying are like a total statement over your whole life all at once. I'm certain for all of you listening that there are parts of your life where you have really repented and you are really learning to live with the freedom of Jesus' grace and forgiveness. But there are other parts of your life where you have not even begun yet. Where you have not even admitted that the situation is hopeless. You are still out there arguing with Peter. So you have not repented. Brothers and sisters, the, the idea of saying all of these things to you through this stupid internet is, this is weighed very heavily on me. I, I wish that we could be all together for this, to, to cry with one another, to hug one another. But I also wonder if in God's timing and purposes, we actually need a moment when our repentance is not for anyone else. It is not for being good. It's not a performance that we put on for anyone's sake. Maybe we do just need to stand with ourselves and our families before God. The Holy Spirit is here for you, just as he was at that crowd in Jerusalem. He has come here before you, eagerly awaiting you. I believe he wants to give us today a gift of a true spirit of repentance. And so we are going to start to pray, and then we are going to head into worship, if you want to take communion at some point, please feel free to do so, but but do not ignore this invitation from the Lord. The Spirit is with you. Will you let yourselves be cut to the heart? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, we need you so badly. There is nothing that we can do for ourselves, and we have been trying so hard. Lord, we have crucified you. Will you forgive us? Lord, cut our hearts to the core. If you feel so led wherever you are, Get down on your knees or lay down and ask the Holy Spirit to bring his true repentance on you. Jesus, you have been so good to us. And the things you have asked of us we have not only left undone, we have turned and spit in your face. Lord, we have nowhere else to turn. We have taken the one hope that we had and we have turned against you. Lord, would you still be gracious to us? you still help us to repent? We're going to keep praying as as the worship team plays and leads us into worship. If you need people to pray for you, hop into the Zoom room now and begin praying. Reach out your hands, hold out your hands, lay on the floor and just repent. Ask the Lord to cut your heart. In Jesus' name.